two percent, two percent, two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there, I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program was brought to you by Domain. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. For more information, visit domainstorage.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are coming to you from Roberta's Restaurant here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, when I am not here hosting In the Drink, you can find me at our new restaurant, Alta Linea, over at the Highline Hotel in Chelsea. It's a beautiful outdoor restaurant, and we just opened up for lunch yesterday. Um, so we're open from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m., Monday through Thursday, 11 to 11 on Friday, and weekend brunch uh, as well as dinner. So hope to see you there at Altalinia for our famous frozen Negroni and some really great uh, Italian small production handmade wines. Um, I'm very excited for today's show. I actually just got back from a great trip to California, and it really uh, revived my excitement about um, the wines from California, how beautiful the place is, the interesting people who are doing things um, in a very handmade, very small production artisanal way that uh, makes some very, very expressive wines. I did not get a chance to visit our, our guest, so he has come all the way to Brooklyn to say hi to us. We have Hardy Wallace, the winemaker at Dirty and Rowdy uh, Winery over in California. Uh, welcome to In the Drink. I love your wines. Uh, it's, it's really exciting to have you here. Uh, thanks so much, Joe. I'm really psyched to be here, and uh, I love coming to New York. This is great. Uh, you just told me, I didn't realize this, that actually you had been on uh, Heritage Radio about four or five years ago on Jesse Kiefer's show uh, uh, the morning after. Uh, Jesse has since moved to uh, Los Angeles. Um, but that had to be super early on in uh, the history of, of Dirty and Rowdy. I think uh, your wines that uh, maybe I only found out about three or four years ago. Um, so what what was happening with you at that time? And go Jesse, by the way, Jesse Kiefer. For, for finding Hardy like so early on in the in uh, the the history of Dirty and Rowdy, what was going on with you then, and what what has changed since then? Wow, yeah. So back, I think that was probably 2012. Um, 
we started making wine in 2010, but we released the first wines in 12, and it was an, we had an incredible response when we first started. And you know, thanks a lot to like our distributor Jenny and Francois, and folks like Nick Gorovich, and you know, lots of great folks that had you know picked us up or got interested in the wines really early. Folks like Pascaline and folks like Alice Firing and things like that really got behind the wines early on and. Our first trip to New York, um, our first event was, I think, a 16-course dinner um, with Freddie when Asco was open next to, you know, the White Hotel at the pop-up. Oh, yeah. And so it was something, like, you know, to come into New York with, like, not just, like, oh, I'm going to pour a couple of wines for somebody, but, like, oh, you're doing a 16-course dinner with Freddie. And uh, it was a mind-blowing event, and it was just such a great way to get things started, both for us coming to New York, but also as a, as a young winery in our first release. So... We kind of hit the ground running, and now four years later, it's it's been an incredible blur. And uh, I have to always knock on wood. I won't do that because I don't want to shake the microphone here. But um, it's just been you know you know we started gosh now almost seven vintages ago. It'll be our seventh vintage this year with two barrels of wine. You know we made less than six hundred bottles, and now six years later, it's finally you know it's, it's my full time job. You know we make seventeen different wines. You know we've got a whole week worth of events this week in New York. Mm-hmm. So we had an incredible dinner last night at Agern. We've got an event tonight at Feng Tu in Chinatown, uh, a 16 wine winemaker dinner tomorrow night at Rebel. And it's so much has changed, but it all started back really with, I mean, kind of our reception in New York because that, that got things going for us in 2012. And it's just been, you know, you know, holding the tiger by the tail right now. And, you know, if you let go, it's, I'm not afraid it's going to run away. I'm afraid it's going to turn around and bite us. You know? <laughs> it's uh, I guess it just proves, you know, the, the kind of vision that you had, uh, a clear vision of, of what you wanted to do from uh, from the beginning. I know three years before before you were here, yeah. you, were, you were working with Kodak, right? Yeah, You were doing something very, very different. Totally different. Uh, did you know that, uh, you know, I, I, from my understanding, Kodak was laying off a bunch of people? I saw a really interesting CBS Sunday morning uh, about that. Ninety uh, percent of uh, uh, the workforce. Uh, so, um, but you said that this was not a sad thing for you, but a, a very happy day for you. Uh, it was the best day of my life. You know, I, I had worked in technology, whether for some s- small software companies, large hardware companies, for about twelve years, and I did it because I fell into it, and um, it provided a fairly comfortable way of life. Um, but it didn't give me any time. It didn't give me, you know, it, one of those things, if, especially if you're doing something just for the money, you never have enough money and you never have enough time. So what I loved and what always got me excited and was my main passion and my main just hobby at the time was just wine for 10 years. So, you know, I'd always travel for wine and read about wine. And, and I was part of a couple of tasting groups and had a lot of friends in the wine trade in Atlanta where I was living. And it was always one of those things that, like, hey, if I could wake up in the morning and didn't have to work for money, you know, didn't have to pay my mortgage, didn't have to do my car payment or anything like that, I'm like, I'd be in the wine business. And I had no idea what that was. I had no idea would I be in sales and marketing, which I was kind of my past career. Would I, I, I definitely didn't think it would be production. I had no idea anything about winemaking. And when I got laid off in 2000, uh, the very beginning of 2009, it was just like I knew exactly what business I was going into. I just didn't know what I would be doing in that business. So you headed over to California. 
Absolutely. Why so, California? Yeah, so actually the crazy thing um, which took me there, because I drank very few California wines. Um, you know, I was mostly into the Northern Rhone and Beaujolais and some Jura wines and you know, a little bit of Burgundy and Champagne, but very little wines from California were at the time getting me excited. But there was one winemaker, a guy named Kevin Kelly, who was the uh, winemaker back in the day for Lyoko. And Kevin was making both for Lyoko, but for himself, like these just beautifully expressive California wines that were very different than anything else I had tried. And so I had met up with Kevin, and long story short, which got me to California, um, ended up actually getting to Kevin by way of, I I went to work for a huge winery for six months uh, for Jackson Family. And Jackson Family hired me um, to do social media for uh, Murphy Good, uh, one of their brands. And they paid for my relocation, moved me to Healdsburg, and kind of gave me a comfortable transition from basically unemployment then in Atlanta to wine country. So I worked with them, had a six-month contract, and um, super grateful for them to do that. Um, Stylistically, those wines were never something that I was really excited about. Mm -hmm. But I knew that, hey, they could give me a way to get out here. Um, And through that, I became really good friends with Kevin Kelly, who was kind of the inspiration for me with California wine. And six months later, I was working with him, and it was a you know just three of us: um, Kevin, an assistant winemaker, a woman named Angela Osborne, who is a tribute to Grace, and then myself. And Kevin really encouraged me to make wine, and uh, I, I never looked back. There are a few things I want to say, but based on that, I mean, number one, you should all look for some of these old videos that Arnie did. Uh, I really love the uh, the Bordeaux uh, point scale, 101 to 102.26. Uh, uh, hilarious. And the um, I would say the Redneck's Guide to Wine Tasting. Uh, look for those. Those are, fin- those are hilarious and fantastic. Those are back in the day. Wow, yeah. Um, also, Lioko yeah. is a winery. That is, was also probably my gateway wine. And and in 2009, I was drinking the same. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm so immersed in Italian wine uh, that when I'm buying wine for home or at restaurants, it's pretty, usually not Italian wine. I want to try other things. And it's really mostly French. Beaujolais, Northern Rhone, Loire, Jura. Like, I think, like, all, you know, a, a wine lovers... Uh, um, who maybe don't have money to buy the best champagne in Burgundy that we would really like to drink. Absolutely. Um, and so that it's funny that Lioka was an entry level gateway wine uh, for me as well into uh, into the great California wines and the Charles Heinz Vineyard Chardonnay oh is just outstanding. Um, and what I what I found uh, from my recent trip to California and and what I've been learning so much more is that people who make interesting wines, handmade wines, really good wines in California, are actually really supportive of each other. Oh my gosh, totally. In a way that I feel like maybe there's more competition amongst the big guys and there's more secrecy, but when you're when you're doing something in a smaller production way and people respect what you do, they, they really kind of help you out. Oh, so much. You know, I, I think, um, and it's not only just our peer group, but I was extremely lucky when we started off, like, not only did Kevin allow me to make wine in his space, but then... I went to work for Aaron Jordan at Fela. Mm-hmm. Aaron, who's amazing, but didn't need to give me the time of day or do me any favors. He allowed me and then two other people to make wine that were working with him in the facility for free. And then I worked for Kathy Corson for a year and a half. And all these people, just not you know, not our peers, but kind of our you know our mentors and seniors, were really like, generous with their time and with their space and you know allowing us to do what we. Do what we wanted to do and um, 
that sort of support's incredible. And then amongst our peer group, oh my gosh, I think, you know, people always ask me, they're like, oh, you know, how do you guys get along with so much competition and everything? There's so many of these like new California wines out there or whatever you like to call them. And for me, I'm like, none of them are competition. They're all our friends. They're all our right. buddies. And it's like, when they do well, we do well and vice versa. And if someone needs help with something, like you, you go and you're there. And you know, you're, you know, someone needs a truck, you borrow it. Someone needs some, you know, help in the winery, you go. And um, someone needs you know, a, a contact at a great restaurant because they want to present their wines, you give them a phone number. And it's, there's, there's really, I've never seen any industry like this where I think there is so much, like, camaraderie and friendship and like genuine love for like for all these people like because I, I think a lot of us have come from similar worlds where we've we were all you know either doing something else whether it was in you know the restaurant industry whether it was finance whether it was you know banking ex-lawyers but people that were like you know what screw what screw what we're doing today like this is what we love and um it's so contagious and it's like I mean, I hate to say it, but it is kind of a love fest out there. It's, yeah. like, it's like, it's the summer of love all over again with wine. <laughs> I love that. Now, and, and I know that there's those operational and practical ways that people are helping out, but what about the kind of learning and educational way? I mean, uh, it, it, you're, you're so new. A lot of these wines that, that we love uh, are, have come either come around in the, the past five, ten years, not Kathy Corson. Yeah. She's been doing things her way for a long time and... Had a respect and love her so oh much gosh, for, for yeah. that. I uh, actually had a chance to meet her. I didn't realize this. The first female winemaker owned winery in Napa Valley. Unbelievable, huh? She, and the wines are incredible. Oh. But how do you talk about how you share information um, and what are some of the, uh, the topics that you've been trying to learn from each other? Oh, I mean, there, there's so much. I mean, like, f- first of all, Especially us, you know, even though we're about to hit our seventh vintage, um, in any other business, seven years sounds like a lot. You know, if you're a restaurant and the restaurant's been there seven years, you're like, man, we, we're killing it. Like, we, like, we're established. In wine, seven years, I feel like I'm still in kindergarten, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, you only get, you know, one at bat a year, you know, for, you know, you, you can't make wine, you know, 365 days a year. You know, you got one chance a year. And there's so many questions, you know, where, you know, you've got a fermentation that's acting a little bit weird and, you know, hey, have you seen this before? Have you smelt something like this before? And, you know, you, you get your buddies on speed dial that have maybe seen something, you know, and, and been in a situation that you haven't been in, in before. And like, hey, is this is this normal? It's, you know, and it's so great to be able to have someone like, hey, I'll drive over and I'll take, I'll take a look or I'll take a, you know, I'll take a smell or no, don't worry about it. You're fine. Or in the exact other way, like you're screwed. So there's a lot of stuff like that. But I think the biggest thing, not just operational, I think the biggest thing is a lot of us share vineyard sources. Mm -hmm. And that is because when it really comes down to it beyond the technique and the the process of the production of winemaking, you know, the most important thing for us is soil and site. And if all of a sudden, you know, I find a great spot that like, you know, I came across a, a vineyard that I got a contract with this old vine dry farm, Chenin Blanc. And right now, Chenin Blanc is probably the hardest white grape to find great Chenin Blanc in California. So there was more Chenin Blanc than I could take. So the very first thing I do is call, you know, Pax at Wingap, who's a good buddy and also has been a real huge help to us. And I'm like, hey, man, like, you know, I can't take it all. You know, will, will you take it? And yes, I mean, so, you know, 
things like that where you'd be like, oh, am I introducing a competitor to this? Someone that's going to, you know, we're going to sell wine in the same markets to mm-hmm. a lot of the same accounts. It's like, no, not at all. It's like I'm doing someone like I know they'll love it. We love it. And like you want everyone to do well. And that almost becomes an interesting way to, to compare it. It's not like uh, there, there's so little Chenin Blanc. And I know a lot of people use the same vineyard for Trousseau yep. or uh, Ribola. And trying those side by side from the same vineyard with different winemakers' approaches to it is really just an interesting way to, to look at that. I, I love it. And, you know, another vineyard that we share is um, called the Antle Vineyard, A-N-T-L-E. And we produce a Milan de Bourgogne off that. And there was a little extra in Pax's assistant winemaker, Scott Schultz, who has a label called Jolie Led. And I knew Scott was looking for, yeah, killer wines. Killer wines. Uh, 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 and just Scott, a just amazing person, too. And I just tried their Gamay. Oh, right. it's great. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> so good. don't take that back. It's horrible. Yes. You don't want it because yep. there's yep. lots of it around. It's easy. To, if you see a bottle, <laughs> just leave it. You'll, just, you'll find it tomorrow. You'll find it tomorrow. <laughs> no. It's, so Scott wanted some Milan. So I, I had my block, but a few rows opened up next to me. And I was like, you know, gave him a call. And I knew what would be great was he and I would approach it radically different. And when you have those two comparisons where you can say, hey, we're basically on the same soil, on the same slope, approaching something in two different ways, and when you can compare and contrast more than anything the terroir, and you can say, wow, like this is how that minerality shows on the skins, this is how it shows direct to press, this is how it shows picked on this date or on this date. It's, for us, for both of us, it's not just like an inner nerd um, fascination that we get, but it's just so educational to see, you know, two different expressions of virtually the same place. And that's one thing that I think is, when I look back at, you know, all of us that are fairly new in this in California, um, we need to keep talking to each other. We need this education because, you know, most of us have only been doing it, you know, 10 years or less. And it's not like we're in Italy where we've got eight generations of family members that have been working the same piece of land. Or, you know, in France, you've got three or four generations where... For us, it's like we get 10 years or less, and the more information we can gather from each other, the better it makes us in that short period of time. Yeah, and it really accelerates that uh, more than, you know, things would have happened many years ago. Absolutely, and it's a different thing from the old world, too, where you talk, like, especially, you know, you go to Bordeaux, and, you know, you ask folks, like, you know, the technical director at the winery, do they talk to their neighbor? And they're like, hell no. Like, they're like, you know, they're like, they can come and taste the wines, but we'll never take them in the cellar. We'll never show them what we do. And we're the exact opposite. It's like everyone's wide open and trying to gather as much knowledge and information as quickly as possible. All right. On that note, we are going to take a short break. We'll be back with more of Hardy Wallace from Dirty and Rowdy Wines uh, just after this. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. Since 2003, they've focused on making collecting easier and more enjoyable. With over 1.5 million bottles in storage across five facilities, Domain is the largest network of wine storage warehouses in the country. 
Warehouses are located in Chicago, St. Louis, Metro New York, Napa, and Washington, D.C., with refrigerated shipment hubs in dozens of cities. Their service also extends to the home collector. In the last decade, the team has organized and inventoried more than 1.7 million bottles in home sellers across the globe. Recently, Domain has launched a marketplace where clients can buy and sell wine. Trading in the network ensures that wines are stored at Domain facilities and commissions are the lowest in the industry. Go to DomainStorage.com to complete an online questionnaire and someone will get back to you within one business day. All right, we are back with Hardy Wallace from Dirty and Rowdy Wines. I say dirty and rowdy and fun and delicious wines <laughs> Thank uh, you. is what they are. These wines are awesome. Uh, I absolutely love them. Um, small production wines, but now many different wines, 17 yeah. of them. We actually, yeah, we started with one wine and just two barrels and one bar- barrel of Merved or two, uh, one cuvee of Merved, our first vintage. And after we made that first vintage, we really believed that Merved had a space in California that had yet to be explored. You know, most people, you know, their only experience with it, for the most part, is Bandal. Some folks in Spain and things like that, or some different styles made in the Central Coast. But for what we had made and how expressive it was of soil, we're like, wow, like let's try making this in another vineyard as well. Like keep this one vineyard. Let's look at it in a totally different light on different soils in a different part of California did that wow radically different with the same type of winemaking let's try it in another spot and another spot and now we actually make eight vineyard designate merveds uh, a ninth non-vineyard designate which is more different merveds than anyone in the world uh, which is bizarre yeah i've never seen it's bizarre (laughs) but if someone said they did that with pinot noir or someone said they did it with chardonnay or zinfandel or things like that you'd say wow okay that makes sense so from my understanding you didn't seek to make more vet at Not the at beginning yeah. uh has that have you now started now that you've started to love this grape have you now started to seek it out has that oh. been a change over the years yeah so once we made that first vintage which again i i say is by mistake um that we chose Merved, and my wife says by serendipity um and and that happened basically in 2010 the weather was very challenging in california we had set out to make skin-fermented muscat, actually, um, early in 2010, but our vineyard got fried with um, sunburn, and then we had our plan B was to make some uh, white Zinfandel. <laughs> actually, we wanted to do, like, ripping acid Zinfandel rosé, and that vineyard got uh, rotted because we got tons of rain. Our plan B was to make old vine petite syrah. That got rotted, and basically plan I won't even say plan D, plan like X was Merved. And the only reason that we made it was uh, the assistant winemaker, who was also my roommate at the time at uh, Lyoko and uh, with Kevin Kelly, was this woman, Angela Osborne, who's making beautiful Grenache off a vineyard called Santa Barbara Highlands Vineyard. I loved her wines. I knew them really, really well. And she said, you know, hey, I know you don't feel like you probably don't want to make Merved, but there's two rows of Merved right next to my Grenache. And... It's a great vineyard. It didn't have any of the weather problems in 2010. She's like, this might be your only chance to make wine this year. And so I thought, you know, Merved was at least like 
in the top 90 grape varieties I thought about working with. <laughs> and uh, we made it, and it was beautiful. But at that same point, not only did we like what we made, but to be able to taste it side by side with a Grenache, that, because Angela made her wine in the same cellar. So to be able to taste it side by side, we were really able to see kind of that transparency, at least between those two wines, Grenache from the same site and Merved from the same site. So it gave us really that inspiration to start looking for it on different places. And now uh, we seek it out. Like I spend, I feel like, you know, 10 to 20% of my time seeking out new Merved blocks because I think it's one of these grapes in California that... No, most of California is an arid, hot, like growing region. You know, we we can think about cool little pockets, cool climate pockets in the Santa Rita Hills, the Sonoma Coast, and a few other spots. But ninety percent of the rest of California's wine growing regions are like hot, desert like spots. And Merved, being a very uh, thick skinned grape, being a slow ripener, being slow to bud out and push out, and that loves sun and hang time. We can make these really cool wines from so many different pockets of California on radically different soils. And it's so fun to explore this um, where I, I think it, it just scratches my head. I, I have to scratch my head because Merved's been planted in California for at least 130 years. But it's always been a blending component. And um, it, it's, it's so much fun to be able to explore and work with a spot that's, I don't want to say is uncharted territory because people have been making mm-hmm. Merved for years, but just not this many different expressions. Yeah, and a very different expression from Bandol. It's Absolutely. Morved has a lot more energy, lower alcohol. Is that something you also had, had planned for? Well, th- those are the types of wines that I, I like to drink. So I, I love, like, like most of us in the wine industry, we love high-acid wines. We love wines with energy. We love wines that have a freshness to them. And I think about that a lot. You know, we like that in our food, too. You know, especially if you like fermented foods or like kimchi and sauerkraut and different cheeses and breads and things, butters. And you're like, you, you want, for lack of better terms, like I use the term chi a lot. You know, like the, you know, like, like tai chi or like the Chinese term chi where you've got this energy and this life force. And we want that in our wines. And, you know, we make some wines, you know, Merveds that are, you know, 11% alcohol and have like ripping acid. And I've got other ones that are a little bit deeper and darker in that, you know, maybe aren't quite as far, you know, into the depths of Bandol. But, you know, you, you smell that and you're like, wow, that is a dark, dark Merved. And it, for us, it's more about finding the sites that express whatever they can do the best way possible. And you use carbonic and semi-carbonic. Can you explain what that what that actually means? Yeah. You... So I, I always like to say uh, we, we don't do a true carbonic. Um, I do a kind of a semi or a partial. Um, and what I do, all of our Merved, so all nine of the cuvées, are 100% whole cluster. I drop them into the tanks, mm-hmm. basically let them sit for a day at least, barely foot tread them just to get a little juice going in the bottom of the tank, and then just... Let them do their thing for a couple of days. And then once fermentation starts, you know, maybe punch it down gently either by hand or a small punch down tool. And what we get is kind of a lot of whole berry fermentation. So, you know, a lot of that fermentation isn't taking place in the juice outside the skins. It's taking place in the, inside the berry. And we do get some of that lightness and some of that lift, but not those bubblegum, banana-y flavors that you'd get with true, like, true carbonic maceration. But for us, it gives the wines a little bit of backbone of, like, actually, like, cinnamon aromatics, a little bit of these kind of spicy aromatics, almost this potpourri-type thing. And it gives the wines lift and approachability, um, where a lot of times you don't think about approachability with y- young Mourvedre, especially Bandai. Right. I right. mean, I- 
I still, I love Bandal of, you know, young and old, but I mean, I opened up a 2013 of a pretty famous producer the other day, just for, for giggles to be like, ah, I'm having hot dogs. <laughs> like, let's, let's try some 13 Bandal. And whew, it was, it was, it was aggressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I can imagine. Yeah, it was great on day three. <laughs> so same bottle over day yes. three. Oh yes. And I, so my understanding, you've pretty much really bootstrapped the, your, your whole operation. But one thing you did splurge for is, uh, uh an egg. <laughs> right, those are not cheap. No, we actually have a couple of them. And, um, but early on our second vintage, um, and, w- and this is back in 2011, there weren't that many in California at the time. PAX had a bunch of them and a few other folks had some. And I can remember, I'll, I'll leave the, the winery name out of it, but um, I had some friends visiting, and we went to a very um, prestigious winery in Napa Valley, and they were very proud. That, you know, they took us through the cellar, and they were like, hey, like, you know, I don't know, we've got one of these concrete eggs over here. I, I don't know if you've ever seen one or ever used one. Um, they're unbelievably expensive, and this is like a, probably a $20 million, $30 million facility. We only have one of them. Have you ever seen one before? And I'm like, I'm like, I got two. <laughs> I mean, they are expensive, but they're not like, I mean, like, you know, now the exchange rate's down. They're about $6,000 each. Okay. Uh, but at the time, they were about nine. And it was, as a bootstrap business that is entirely you know, self-financed between, you know, Rowdy and his wife, my wife and I, um, you know, writing a check for anything that was more than like 50 bucks at the time was like, oh my God, it was a stab in the heart. Right, yeah. It still kind of hurts, but it's had this. But we really believed in how these eggs, you know, worked as fermentation and aging vessels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, now we've got a couple of them, still love them. And I, I, I honestly wish I had the money for a lot more of them. I would do so much for a production. What, what do you love about them? Oh, man. So many different things. So, First of all, if you take the shape of, the, of a concrete egg out of, it, out of the equation, just concrete itself. So concrete holds this interesting space to me between the breathability of wood and the, basically you know, the lack of breathability of stainless steel. It's not directly in the middle. Um, where it's not halfway in between, it's closer to stainless. But concrete does allow a little bit of oxygen to pass through. So you've got this tight but still not as tight as stainless steel uh, vessel that you're either aging or fermenting in. But then you add the shape into it, and the shape where you've got a very wide bottom and a narrow top. And one of the byproducts of fermentation is carbon dioxide. And if you're working in, let's say, a regular tank that's cylindrical, you have a equal size bottom and an equal size top. That carbon dioxide that's being generated through fermentation just raise, goes from the bottom and raises to the top and kind of collects at the top of the tank. But an egg with that fat bottom and narrow top, as that CO2 is going up into the egg and hits those sides, it starts to accelerate. And it's, as it's going from a, a wide bottom to narrow top, it basically keeps circulating you know, amongst itself and creates almost like a vortex of basically suspended uh, leaves and dead yeast cells. So what I like about it is it's almost like you're giving, doing a natural, um, basically badinage the whole time through fermentation. And because we tend to pick a little bit on the um, earlier side with more acid and a little bit less flesh, uh, for us, the eggs are beautiful because we're able to maintain acidity and kind of freshness, but build this texture from this constant leaves agitation. And I love it. Amazing. And uh, I have to say, I love your wines. We, oh. have, to, we have to finish up on that. Hardy, that has been, it's just been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Joe, thank you so much. I want, I I want to thank you show. so much. Uh, I want to encourage you guys all, if you haven't tried them yet, uh, Dirty and Rowdy Wines, they are absolutely fantastic. Small production, uh, but they're really worth, uh, they're worth seeking out.
Uh, I wanted to thank Nick Gorovich from Jenny and Francois and the, the whole team at Jenny and Francois for setting this up. Uh, David Tadashore from Heritage, Aaron Fairbanks, and all the great team here at Heritage. Thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.